0: back on Young Turks, Uh, we're looking forward to doing a presidential debate on climate crisis. Uh, If you wanna help uh, make that happen, it's tyt.com slash town hall. We're at almost $143,000 right now, we get to 200,000. We think we can put together a spectacular one for you guys. All right, uh, let me go to my next guest, joining me now is Joe Sestak. He is running for president, obviously on the Democratic side, he's a former member of Congress. And a three-star admiral, Admiral Sestak. Welcome to the Young Turks.
1: Great to be back. Thanks, Chank.
0: No problem. Uh, so uh, I want to talk about why you're running for president. And but before we get to that, we got to ask about the timing because you joined the uh, race late, and and that has uh, arguably hurt you in in getting recognized and getting media coverage, etc. So uh, why, why did you jump in so much later than almost uh, the rest of the field? Well, Chank.
1: Uh, When my daughter was four years old, she had brain cancer. I was in the Navy. I got out, took care of her. And then I went to nearly two to one Republican district, became the second Democrat since the Civil War. After I was in Congress, though, I was doing other things, and her brain cancer came back last year. It was glioblastoma, same as John McCain and Ted Kennedy. No adult ever survives, only 8% of children does. And she beat that demon the second time. But I had to wait till she was in a safe harbor in June. So I got in late, you might say, but why I'm running is timely, extraordinarily timely. But I got in not thinking that I was gonna do this a year ago, and that's the reason uh, that I was late.
0: Well, look, uh, you can't have a better reason. Uh, So uh, we appreciate uh, how much you cared for your family, obviously, love that your daughter beat it twice. That's amazing, wonderful. Uh, So let's, let's talk about why you're in the race. Uh, At one point, I think there was 25 people in the race. Now a number of folks have dropped out already, uh, including Senator Gillibrand yesterday. So what made you wanna get into this crowded field?
1: I honestly believe that we actually need a candidate who can beat Mr. Trump, who can unite our country, who can convene the world, and that people will trust. Because they will know that he will always be accountable to them, above party, above any special interest, and above oneself. And I, that's what we most need. We can have a president, but if we have a president that can only beat Mr. Trump, which has to be done, but can't unite this country, we'll end up doing executive orders again, and the next president rips them out. I represented, as I mentioned, a nearly two to one Republican district. I got reelected by 20 points, and I didn't spend a penny, not a penny, on a campaign ad. And yet I had an F from the NRA. I had 100% voting record by NAREL pro-choice, by now, by human rights campaign. We learned how to disagree well, and then they respected me. Because I ran against my own party when I thought it was wrong on principle. And Shank, you remember, Senator Arlen Specter, the Republican who became a Democrat. The Republican senator who was permitted by members of our party to try to humiliate Anita Hill when she had brought sexual harassment claims against now supreme court Clarence Thomas justice that is and I wouldn't abide by that how can we welcome him now today after the me too generation you know no one would have back then I was 40 points down and I beat him but at a cost but that's what accountability is is doing it when it matters so not only will it beat Mr. Trump, but being able to unite this country to judge climate change and other issues when they see somebody who's demonstrated that he will always be for them, above party self or any special interest, is the reason I'm, I'm running. Because if we don't unite this country, we're not going to meet the defining challenges of our time.
0: So, Admiral Sestak, as real as you can get, how did you wind up winning in that district that was two to one Republican? Yeah, you know, it was very simple is we
1: kept the office open to nine o'clock every night, seven days a week, because I took over when a war began at home. I mean, i had been on the ground in Afghanistan for a short period of time. I had commanded an aircraft carrier battle group, but I stepped into war at home where the Great Recession had begun. And we didn't care if you're Democrat or Republican. We saved over 800 homes. Over 4,000 veterans came to us who no longer could afford private health and needed to get back into the VA. And we did so much for people, and they appreciated. But second, it's town halls all the time. Remember the tea party? Man, I had 10 town halls on health care, and I got there half an hour early and shook everybody's hand as they came in. They yelled and screamed at me, but I explained why this was in their interest. Now, they still didn't vote for me, but in the last one, they took a picture with me. I talked with them. If you disagreed with me on choice, you had to care. Come on in, sit down in my office at 8 o'clock Saturday morning, and 60 came the first day. And I answered them at the end of why I felt it was still a woman's choice. The government had no right to tell her what to do. And they kind of kind of see it a little bit more from my side, but I spoke with them. That's what you do as a good captain of a ship. You bring the crew together, you speak with them, but you stand by your principle and explain why that had to be.
0: Right. So now let's go to, well, actually, you mentioned captain of a ship. So let me, let me uh, given that you have the uh, military career that you do, uh, let me talk about the news of the day a little bit. So uh, Jim Mattis came out uh, today with an excerpt from his book. I I don't know how much you've had a chance to read it. But uh, he talks about um, how the country is now being divided, uh, and that a democracy is not uh, to be taken for granted. Now in a sense, it's uh, heartening to hear uh, the former Defense Secretary for Donald Trump pointing out the divisiveness and worrying about democracy, but uh, another way of looking at that is, my God, you've got to be clear, cuz that's going to get lost on people. You need to say, not both sides are doing it, but Donald Trump is dividing the country. And if you think democracy is in danger, perhaps you should actually say the person that is putting it in danger. That's my take, but I'm super curious as to what your take is.
1: Well, I know General Mattis, I worked, when I ran the Navy's $350 billion program, I, he ran the Marine Corps equipment program. And I had actually recommended that we need to reduce how much money we we're putting into the Navy from 375 ships down to 260. And I was cutting some of those amphibious ships of his for the Marines. And so we, But we, we fought hard, but we had respect for each other. And I think that's what he has done. He was in, we weren't in the military that, and he said, at some time, I will come out more. Remember, he said that in the article. Well, what he also remembered is that I need to say why the most damaging thing is that I didn't stay there. And he did tell us, and that's one of the second reasons I'm I'm running, is he said we are treating our brute allies as though they're nothing. That he recognizes the strongest power of America is not its military. It's not its economy. It's the power of our ideals to convene the world, to bring others together for a common cause that serves us all. And he said, we're kicking our bruised allies, leaving them home and coming behind a wall at home think it would come great, and that is gonna endanger our American dream. He's the one who said, climate change is a national security issue today. And if we don't convene the world where 85% of the greenhouse emissions comes from overseas, we can pass the Green New Deal, but if we do nothing else, it won't matter unless we convene the world to have it handled. So he's made it pretty clear that he's not happy with the damage that's been done by Mr. Trump, by this administration, on saying, hey, allies, you're useless. Yeah. And guess what? And you probably know this, Shank, that sculpture that's closest to the Oval Office isn't an American, it's of, the, of a foreigner. The allies stood next to George Washington and helped them win the Revolutionary War and an honor not of him, but of the fact that a president has to remember if we don't convene our allies, we cannot sustain the American dream that General Roschenbau, that French general, helped win our American dream. That's why convening the world is so important, it's also why I'm running. With a breadth and depth of 31 years of understanding how to go about the world, and that militaries can stop a problem, but we never fix a problem. And you can see that from a lesson in Iraq. And Jim Mattis knew that as Secretary of Defense
0: also. So the, the website is JoeSestak.com, and you could find out more about the Admiral's point of view, etc. from there. Uh, but let's now take uh, time to dive into that. So. You you say you're running because you you think you can defeat Donald Trump, and we need steady leadership once we do. Fair enough. But what is it that you're dying to get done if you're president? Well, let
1: me tell you what my first forty-eight hours are going to be because it's going to be nonstop. That first day, I'm going to have a town hall in the middle of America. Then I'm going to fly over to Paris to convene the world of those 194 of 196 nations, including us, that aren't meeting their Paris climate. Uh, commitment. I'm going to say we have to raise those commitments even more or we're not going to make it because it's the most catastrophic threat to mankind. On the way back, I'm going to announce training for a lifetime. Look, I can explain to you after this uh, question about how we can take care of student loans pretty readily with you only pay back 5%. Uh, and there's a program in government to do that of your income. But I want to make sure we we focus upon who the Democratic Party actually should be focusing upon, the artisans, those who work with their hands and their minds. We spend less than any developed nation on labor force training, 0.001% of GDP. So when that man or woman loses their job in the coal mine, who trains them for the next job? When that person here in Iowa actually now won't be driving a tractor because they're going to be driven wirelessly within the next year, who trains them for the next job? In the military, we train them and retrain them for a career. And that's what the major program that i to announce on the way back. Now, when I land, I am going to go to a mosque because it often matters how the president acts and where he goes and how he treats certain places respectfully. But I'll also go to a gun show. And I'm going to walk around, ask Ali North, former president, who I knew, who ran my backside when I went down to see if I was going to be a Marine. He was back from Vietnam. He's former president of the NRA. And everybody will know that I'm for an assault weapons ban. Everybody will know him for a background check. I've been there for day one in Congress. But I'm going to walk through and say, you're fine Americans, but there's certain things here we don't need. And then I'm going to go to an Indian reservation. Because 5,000 women, 5,000 Native American women disappear every year or are murdered. And why isn't that on the front page of every paper? So those are the first days, but boy, trust me, whether it's small businesses, to try to get them going again, because we're only creating half as many as we used to, and they create 70% of all jobs, or whether it's to make sure we finally get on the path to single payer by getting back that single public option that I voted for in Congress, and the Senate couldn't stand up to the health insurance industry, we'll get that going also. But I tell you, that first day, I wanna make sure also by my presence in certain places, they understand some immediate priorities that day of healing this country's soul. Uh,
0: so just a little bit more clarity on the vote that you just mentioned there. What, what did you vote on uh, in, in terms of health care?
1: Yes, in Congress, when we voted the first time on the Affordable Care Act, it had a public option in it. And as I said to everybody, this is wonderful. This is the pathway to single payer. And what I had advocated, as I spoke about it, was there's gonna be two possible paths. The public option will be in the basket of choices. And we'll head towards Medicare for All, or we'll head towards what is the VHA. Because as you probably well know, uh, the VHA, the hospital side of it, not the VBA benefit side, which is broken, and I'll fix that when we get there. But the VHA has been rated by the New England Journal of Medicine and Rand Corporation as being in the top uh, or equal to any private health insurance provider, any public, uh, public health care provider like Medicaid or Medicare in the 11 top indices of health care provision. So that's one way to do it, probably for the rural counties, where they're losing rural communities. So you can have a government-owned hospital there like the VA has. The other public option heads towards Medicare for all, to where you finally do away with that middleman, the health insurance company. But it's a transition of choice. And let me explain what I mean by that. I believe very strongly that we have to make sure this works. Remember, we have a government that beat Japan and Germany in four years but couldn't roll out a healthcare website in four years. So we got to make sure that this thing works. And that's the other thing I want to make government work. And so as you say in the Navy, piss poor planning is piss poor execution. And so we will have people begin to get into this because there's 255 million Americans like myself, even though I'm pre- previous military, they're in some form of private healthcare. Umana ran ours and I got denied by that insurance company for three hundred thousand dollar bill, we were going to have because they wouldn't give my daughter the new medicine for her brain cancer. Now we had to try to appeal and work our way through that. But you won't get that with single payer. But you know what? If anybody tried to steal our private healthcare plan, which was at that in the next two or four years, without having to be a transition towards that. I would have been also walking in front of the White House, a striking, so to speak. We've got to make sure that how we care for people is also how well we treat them during this transition where many people aren't just forced to go in. They see it's working, they move towards it. And as you get a few years down the path, then you can make the time windows where everybody moves in. So um,
0: that opens up a couple of avenues for questioning. One is uh, what happened back in the day, I was in favor of a public option back then as well. We were quite adamant about it. And and it was right. great uh, to see uh, congressmen such as yourself uh, fighting for it, voting for it, etc. But uh, it wasn't really the Republicans, uh, yes, yeah, sure, the Republicans voted no, but we expected that. It was Democrats like Joe Lieberman and then eventually Barack Obama who said no to the public option. So if you're president, you're still gonna, Lieberman might not be in the Senate, but his ghost is going to be, and the same campaign donations from those industries are still going to be. And they're gonna affect not just Republicans, but your Democratic colleagues. If you're president, what do you do about that problem? How do you- uh, you yeah. I'm
1: sorry, you hit your
0: finger on it. I mean,
1: 450 Democrats and and senators have taken a lobbying job since 1998. And you know what? Some of them are also those gentlemen and gentle ladies who voted for that tragic misadventure in Iraq that went on to create ISIS and left two days on the count of consequences. Some of them are also the ones that tore down the wall and the one place where a wall is definitely needed to keep greed out and accountability in. And then when they tore the wall down of the aptly named Wall Street, it devastated my constituency's life that we had to keep our office open to nine o'clock, seven days a week to help salvage the carnage. And not one of those politicians ever answered themselves to be accountable for what they did. But they took that lobbying job, and the revenue has gone up 100% in those 20 years. as the mean level of income of working families flatlined. So we have to stop the revolving door, period. Just stop it. And we cannot let lobbyists be there. I've turned down six and seven figure jobs because of this, and it has to stop. And then we have to publicly get out there and fight for it. And I wish, I love President Obama, but you know, I really wish that he'd been out there from the very beginning fighting for that healthcare bill. And so many Democrats just didn't wanna do the town halls. You gotta fight for what you care for.
0: So in that fight, though, you'll run into pleasant people like Michael Bennett. And he is, he's uh, awfully pleasant. Uh, but he says no, uh, no to Medicare for all, uh, no to that pathway. Um, so look, you're you're not you're, the plan you just outlined. In some ways, the VHA is is even more than Medicare for all because it would uh, make uh, hospitals public, uh, not just health insurance. Uh, but in other ways, it falls a little short of Medicare for all because you believe in a longer transition through a public option. But when when the Michael Bennett's of the world go. Hey, you know, President Sestak, I'm just not going to vote for that. And and what do you do with that? And they, there's going to be a lot of them. So how how, yeah, do, yeah, how yeah. do you pass it? Because you because you can't get anything done right. unless you pass the bills.
1: Absolutely right, and that's why I made the point that the president has to be someone who has demonstrated accountability to go against his party when it. Counted in consequences for him, regardless of the consequences, and can also demonstrate that he can bring Republicans to support him, as I did in my two to one, nearly two to one Republican district. I've done that. But how did I do it? I went over all the Republican officials' heads, as I did, or as I went, so to speak, over the Democratic, even our president, who endorsed Senator Arlen Specter, came in and did a million dollar fundraiser for him. I was 40 points down. And I went to the people. That's why I mentioned to you that first town hall, that first day of the event. If we had had our warriors out there on Fox every day, and I've been on Sean Hannity. I mean, a couple, I've been in Breitbart already, this exercise, talking about how, how we need the undocumented. You know, you go out there and from day one, you're on the football field, not in the stands, out in the football field. And every Democrat should have been out there. And the president should, you know, as president, I'll go to every single state if it takes it to win this for people. Heck, we kept our office open at 9 o'clock every night. And, you know, we worked seven days a week. Now we rotated interns underneath, you know, my staff. But I'll do anything to go to over the head of those 87% of Republican officials I had in my district. I went over their heads to the people, and then the people make it happen. And that's what we didn't do. You know darn well that there was Democrats that didn't even have town halls because they didn't even understand the bill.
0: So, look, Admiral Sestak, I mean, you, that's music to my ears, right? The The number one problem with the Democratic Party is that they don't fight and they don't show up. Uh, and and they run from questions, they run from town halls, they run from Republicans, they run from Donald Trump. We're sick of people running uh, from Republicans. We wanna actually engage in the battle. And so uh, I think a lot of our audience would, uh, is, is very happy to hear that. Uh, let's go back into policy though. So you mentioned uh, climate change and that that would be one of the very first things you would do to go to Paris, convene the world. Uh, that's also great to hear. Um, But I'm curious about the specifics of the policy. So for example, uh, uh, one of the folks that that you're competing against now, Bernie Sanders, uh, released a $16 trillion plan uh, for Green New Deal. uh, In his proposal, uh, he believes it would create 20 million new jobs, rebuild the energy infrastructure in this uh, country. Uh, What do you make of a plan like that and how does yours compare?
1: I haven't been through his entire plan at all. And I would probably regret that. You know, we're living here out of an econologue in Iowa. I've left there like one or two days in the past 60 days. And, uh, but I'll tell you this. We have to do whatever is needed. And we need to start paying for it also because our debt is precarious. But the first couple of years, we can do what needs to be done. Here's what I propose a carbon fee that rises, starts at about $40 and rises $10 every time. It's what we did, as you well know, when we had acid rain. It was a different mechanism, but it actually moved the market to stop acid rain. I remember those days, even as a young kid, having the word acid rain. And so we need to do that immediately. Then we need to close down all the fossil fuel subsidies. Look, I'm the only statewide, probably one of the few politicians at all uh, in Pennsylvania that ran that we needed a moratorium on fracking. And so, you know, just I believe that we have to stop that. It's why I'm against the Keystone Pipeline. We have to make sure that we wean ourselves off as rapidly as possible. But you do that by making sure you stop all these subsidies we're giving to the, the oil industry and move them over immediately. And then you do exactly what you say. You invest into that green infrastructure. But I have to tell you something. And I want to just give one more example. Saudi Arabia, if you don't mind, too, Saudi Arabia will use as much energy in 10 years to power its air conditioning as it exports in oil today. The wow, tropics, really? Like 8%, yes. Holy cow. Eight, yeah, and that's, you know, we got to close down all the oil. Here's another example of why I say this is really take somebody with global experience and people aren't talking about this. Only 8% of the tropics has air conditioning today. But Africa has five of the top developing economies out of the 10 in the world. They're middle classes. They're going to have almost a majority lower or middle middle class by about 2050. And the first thing you get is a, is a smartphone when you move in a lower middle class and then air conditioning, which China did in southern China to get air conditioning, to make it the workshop of the world. And so If they don't buy, there's something called the Kigali agreement, and we signed it, but did not ratify it. And so we can't force it on all the other nations to follow it on hydrofluorocarbons that are supposed to go away from these air conditionings and refrigerants and all. And so therefore, one of those molecules is a thousand times worse than CO2. Second, if we don't force the most efficient air conditioning today, that's the standard today, throughout the world, and they just use the average one, it will be equivalent to deforesting two-thirds of the Amazon. And that's why I say, boy, we have got to set the example here. And you've got to have a plan that you can lay it out and show how you're going to pay for it. Because our debt's going to be, if we stay the way we are, 140 to 180% of our gross domestic products by the end of the decade. But we can do this. But you've also got to make sure that this world... It has a commitment. China is going to actually build 1,600 coal plants in the next decade, mainly by taking down the coal plants in its uh, country and putting them in where it has its Belt and Road Initiative with over 70 countries and telling them, here's what you need for your energy, Africa. And yeah. so if we don't stop that, we're having a problem. Then this problem is a lot more complex.
0: Right, Admiral like One last policy question here, and that's about military intervention. So right now, uh, there's debate about uh, you know what to do with Iran in terms of the the peace deal. Yeah. Then there's certainly you know Afghanistan and Syria. Uh, where do you stand on that spectrum of intervention versus uh, bringing everybody back home?
1: If you're using our military, you've either made a mistake or have been inadequate in making sure you prevented or or stopped something from going amiss. Well, let me give you an example. You had Democrats and Republicans alike, as I mentioned, that voted for that war in Iraq and didn't understand the Sunnis from a Shia. And they unleashed them to fight amongst themselves and then created ISIS. And they didn't even understand that before you make a decision to use your military, you better know how it ends before it begins. And so now take Iran. In Iran, we actually convened the world, which I told you was the world's greatest power. We had strange bedfellows even, Russia and China, for economic and diplomatic sanctions, And we removed the nuclear warfare capability from that country. And you know what? They would have had two nuclear devices within 30 days. And we did it without our military. And now we broke our word? When they kept theirs? And we think we're going to fix a problem that we had already fixed with our diplomacy. Diplomacy fixes problems. When I was on the ground in Afghanistan, at the beginning of that word for a short period, very short period, I came out and I told people, and I still say it today, if we had, if we fixed the illiteracy rate of women in Afghanistan, we would do more to fix the global war of terror than we would by our military. And now, after 18 years of war, still crying courageously to stop it. And so people have to understand that military stop problems, they don't fix problems. And Democrats, Republicans alike just don't understand that. Not only presidents, but senators who voted for that war. And you know what? Where's the accountability for that? No. That's why you want allies to be convening together. Even with China on trade, what are we doing scattershotting tariffs out there? Convene the world with the World Trade Organization. Fix those issues. Take about 70% of the world's GDP countries. Japan, the EU, et cetera. And then together we say, China, look, you got to be just. You know, you're kind of stealing our intellectual property. You know, you got subsidies going to state-owned industries. But there's rules of the road you got to follow. And together, you don't want to trade with us. You're not going to be able to unless you do things fairly for our people and and all. And look, I backpacked through China. The first year they opened up independent travel. It's a beautiful, wonderful country and people. But his leadership is a little bit mischief. They've already forced two countries, Cambodia and Djibouti, to with predatory loans to give it naval bases overseas because they, that's what they want to do, and they force it by predatory loans. We got to stop that nonsense, but do it by the world, peacefully, diplomatically, economically.
0: All right, Admiral Joe Sestak, former congressman, running for president on the Democratic side. The website is joesestak.com, and we'll have all the links down below if you're watching later on YouTube and Facebook, so you can click on them, donate, volunteer, etc. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us on The Young Turks, appreciate it.
1: Shank, thanks for having me aboard. It was a real pleasure again.
0: No problem. Talking with you. I had to wait for the interview to be over before I coughed, okay. (laughs) <laughs> and guys, the reason I'm hanging on is I wanna tell you two quick things that are important. In the post game, there's gonna be a discussion about a really interesting Netflix show that shows you what Donald Trump has done, and, and, <clears throat> and it's about manufacturing. It's really, really interesting. I don't want you to miss it. That's for the members, tyt.com slash join. But mainly I wanted to remind you guys. Tomorrow, we are not going to be on YouTube as we normally are live. We're gonna go to tyt.com. If you remember, you could watch there at tyt.com slash join is how you become a member. tyt.com slash live is how you watch, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern. But we're also going to be live on all the channels that we got 24-hour channels on now, or all the platforms that we have those channels on, Pluto, Roku, Zumo, YouTube TV. So make sure you check us out tomorrow, Power Panel, Ida Rodriguez, Matt Sheffield, a former conservative leader turned progressive is going to be on our power panel in the first hour. John Iderola is going to take me on in my predictions and challenge me. So it's a great show. Don't miss it tomorrow on those channels and on TYT. All right we'll see you there.